You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, Anil Lakani, Director of Marketing at Signal FX, chats with Mark Burgess, Professor Emeritus of Network and System Administration, former founder and CTO of CF Engine, and now an independent technologist and researcher. They talk about the new edition of Mark's book, In Search of Certainty, Promise Theory and How Promises Are a Kind of Service Model, and Ways of Applying Promise-Oriented Thinking to Networks. Enjoy the show! Hello, my name is Anil Lakani, and with me I have Mark Burgess. Mark, introduce yourself. Well, so my name is Mark Burgess. I'm a, a th- originally a theoretical physicist, and I strayed into computer science uh, during the 1990s. And I'm probably well known for CF Engine as a, an open source project, hopefully also for the research that I've done over the years into infrastructure and behavior of systems from our from a kind of a physics point of view. Can you tell us a little bit about that research? Um, Because I was a physicist, I tend to look at systems from the point of view of a physicist, looking at phenomena and and things that happen rather than, as in computer science, you would imagine a computer simply does what you tell it. You instruct the computer and it does something for you. But uh, as a physics guy, I look at it and I think, you know, what? how does it behave? How do I describe its behaviors? And are these correlated with the inputs that are given to it? And how do we measure it? And, and what theories can we write down about it? So I really started uh, to try to do that. Um, kind of started out with measuring. So back in, I guess, 1998, 99, I just started measuring systems to see what kind of patterns emerged, how, what kind of variables could be measured. And then gradually pictures built up over the years and, uh, and, Well, there's a whole history behind it. Right. And you've just released the second edition of one of your books called In Search of Certainty, right? That's right. Uh, The good people at O'Reilly were kind enough to republish the book that I originally self-published. Ah, so tell us a bit about what the book was about and what's new in the second edition. The book was a, um, a very personal project for me which I wrote at a time when all kinds of things were changing, and I I thought it would be a good time to write down some of my experiences. Uh, And it starts trying to... I I often have trouble explaining a physicist's point of view on computer science to computer scientists or or even computer practitioners. Uh, And it's because there are so many assumptions and historical references there uh, which I rely on and take for granted, which are not accessible to, you know, a different audience. So what I wanted to do is to, to try to document some of that story and really create a narrative around my research in IT and also the, the creation of CF Engine and how that, all that stuff fit into the narrative, which was, you know, which started from, from science and the history of science because I feel that computer science is almost apart from the rest of the sciences. It's it's not a some people say it's not a true science, and that might be there might be something to that. But there's no reason why it couldn't be. Uh, but we we tend to separate our, our narrative about computer science from the narrative of physics and biology and these other sciences. And there's, and many of the ideas, of course, all of the ideas that computers are based on originate in uh, in these other sciences. So I felt it was important to weave computer science into that historical narrative and, and, and write the kind of book that I loved to read when I was a teenager, the popular science uh, book explaining ideas and, and popularizing some of those ideas and weaving a story around it to hopefully create a, a wider understanding. So if you have to state one or two key ideas from In Search of Certainty, what would they be? I think what I, one of the things that uh, 
struck me as I was writing it is that it all goes back to scales. This is a very physicist's point of view. When you measure the world, when you observe the world, when you characterize it even, you need a sense of something to measure it by. And how do you create uh, measuring sticks, if you like, to, to understand the phenomena? So I started the book explaining really how scales affect the way we describe systems in physics and how scale is intimately... And by scale, I mean, you know, the the order of magnitude that we sort of look at, what setting of the microscope, zoom level, if you like, do we uh, do we describe phenomena? As you zoom in, you get to a smaller scale. As you zoom out, you get to a larger scale. Uh, and the descriptions of systems are often qualitatively different at these different scales. Uh, again, something which we don't tend to understand in a, in a clear way in computer science, um, because... In computer science, you're mostly focused around intent, what what we'd call semantics. Uh, and intent doesn't have a numerical measurement. We don't have a measuring stick for intent. We simply write code, we program. But in, in physical phenomena, changes, uh, measurable things, speed, size, weights, uh, rates of change, these kind of measurable numerical things, which I call dynamical things, they do have measuring sticks, and we know how to create uh, measuring scales from them. So, uh, and part of my work over the years has been trying to find out how we could uh, invent a measuring scale for semantics. This is how uh, so-called promise theory came about. But uh, I think this, this notion of scale and how it applies, how we apply it to systems is hugely important. That sort of goes, that runs through the whole book from the beginning to the end. That was one of the most useful and interesting things that I personally got out of my first reading through In Search of Certainty, this idea of the importance of scales and the different kinds of scales that might exist. More generally speaking, the importance of the context or uh, extraction level that one is working at when talking about a particular function or measurement or model of how things should behave. In the second edition of In Search of Certainty, what's new? On the whole, I tried to preserve most of, of the original structure of the book, which was a, a combination of science and personal history, how I went about studying these things and what motivated me to do it, to try and add that little personal element, and also to, to, to document who was involved. So some of the other people that I worked with tried to name names in a good way. <laughs> uh, you know, who was involved in the different projects, students and co-workers and, and whatnot. But the one thing that I did want to change was I thought the almost the piece de resistance in the book, which was perhaps the weakest chapter, which was um, at the very start of the book, I make the point that now as we look at systems, we're going to have to start describing them in a rather new new way, we need a new language, and I drew the analogy with material science, thinking of the elements in a system as atoms, and then what happens as you combine these atoms into a larger system, different ways you can do it, is it a solid, is it a gas, is it, you know, what are the properties of such a, a system? And I think that chapter where I tried to come back to that and make it more uh, concrete suffered a bit from um, not giving good examples. So there are two examples I was very interested to, to bring to bear, which sort of emerged as I was writing it and, and after it published. They, both of these things sort of became widely spoken about, uh, which is why I missed them perhaps the first time around. One was uh, the idea of microservices, um, which is very like the concept I have of promises. Um, the way that you design microservices in systems 
it's quite like the methodology that you would use to go about decomposing a system in terms of these promises. And I wanted to make that connection. Also, microservices, I think, are a great uh, example of where humans enter the picture. One of my hobby horses, I suppose, since the since about 2000, when I wrote a, a book called Analytical Network and System Administration, Managing Human Computer Systems, is that we cannot understand computer systems without taking into account the humans, because they are an integral part. They provide not only input, but also feedback. And we are interconnected. It's a symbi symbiosis, not a, not a, a one-way one -way, uh, street. Um, and I was having a conversation with Adrian Cockroft, and he, he pointed out to me that my thinking about systems is very colored by operations which is a fair comment i think because my background is certainly operations even though i you know developed code over the years i, I suppose i think like a, an operations person but there's a whole new culture of development developer culture which has a huge influence on the way things are done today and i wanted to incorporate that you know how do you scale the human aspect of the system as well i think microservices uh, especially the way they were, especially the way Adrian talks about them at uh, Netflix are a great example of how you break things down into small pieces in order to scale the human problem, not the not the machine problem, first and foremost. And then the second thing was the the networking piece. Um, most of what goes on in IT, I would claim, is from a, from a material physics point of view, is a gas. The internet is a gas, yeah, and I don't mean it's funny. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's floated. It has no fixed, uh, crystalline structure, no solid structure. But the one place where we're starting to build solid structures is in the data center around, uh, CLOS network architectures, very regular patterns of, of systems wired together and, and coded together in a very precise crystalline way. And I thought that, that was also a great, uh, example of how this, um, material physics analogy allows us to look at systems in a new way. Okay. Well, since you've brought it up a few times, can you give us a shortened version, as short as possible, of what a promise is and what promise theory is? It's that thing where you tell somebody something <laughs> that you that you intend to do. It's it's a promise is is um so the the absolute shortest version I can come up with is a promise is a description of intent that you share with someone. Until you share it with someone it's not a promise, it's just an intent which you may or may not, you know, um, broadcast. But but as soon as you share it with someone, it, it sort of becomes a promise, either to yourself or to them or, or to, to somebody else. But um, it's basically a, a documentation of intent. So what you do in, in, when, in a promise-oriented view is that you, you, you look at what are the agencies capable of bringing about state, uh, what are the agencies capable of making promises? You could simply say, uh, and these are, you know, abstract things in promise theory. They they might be machines, they might be people, they could be microphones promising to record what we're talking about. You know, the in a very in the most abstract sense, an agency is simply something with which has a purpose, a function, which has semantics and has behavior. And the purpose of uh, introducing promises was to create that measuring stick that we were talking about to describe behavior and break it down into atomic parts. In a similar way, microservices try to do this for the service-oriented architecture or computing, distributed systems in computing. They are a service model, and promises are kind of a service model. 
you make a promise, it means that you intend to keep it. You intend to keep it. You intend to do something as a service, like a service. But in the same, by the same token, the recipient of a promise also has to, you know, the fact that I promise you chocolates or flowers doesn't mean that you will accept them. So there's also a reciprocal um, part of that, which is the promise to accept. And I, I think of these as um, the giving promises are uh, the freedoms and the receiving promises are the constraints. You offer so much and then you will take somewhat less than that or you, you're not getting more than that, but you may, you may choose to take less. So, and, and this is all about voluntary cooperation between independent, autonomous actors or agents, as we call them. And that's really important because that independence, that autonomy, is not only a good methodological construction to break things down into atomic local decisions. It's also a true representation of how the world works. You simply cannot force your will onto another uh, device, person, or whatever without actually attacking them physically. And mostly we don't do that, but we, we try to coerce, we, we try all kinds of um, ways to persuade perhaps, but ultimately it's up to that individual person or device or agent to decide itself whether or not it promises to to give or accept something. And in microservices, it's uh, somewhat similar, a very independent breakdown of, of small pieces independently, independently contributing towards a larger problem. And then what's left when you've documented these agencies is the promises they make, you know, the, the interactions between them, which are the, the services, the microservices. And that breakdown, that, that methodology of breaking it down is actually hugely useful, hugely valuable to understanding all of the pathways of communication inside a piece of software, and indeed all of the failure modes that could could uh, be set in. All right. Well, looking back on your history with research and CF Engine and some of your new ideas from In Search of Certainty, here's a question. If you were to build CF Engine today from scratch, what would you do differently? Uh, that's a great question. You're always trying to find the balance between the forces of destruction and the forces of repair. And uh, CF Engine, therefore, would need today really to to work on microsecond timescales for those situations and scenarios where, where errors and, and things are occurring uh, through services. Hypervisors, you know, as we try to scale these different systems, we're really looking at designing operating system kernels that scale from a single box to multiple boxes, to data centers, um, you know, with projects uh, from containerization to uh, resource allocation like Mesos and Kubernetes and Borg and these essentially sort of data center operating system-like projects to the, the Cambridge University projects and, and unikernels and... and um, redesign of operating systems. And, and the way I, I see it, all of that sort of shifting is more towards a promise point of view where agency is localized within containers, within processes, uh, which are responsible for themselves and actually can self-servicely, that's <laughs> that old word, um, self-servingly try to acquire the resources they need or request the services they need and have them responded to quickly. And that, a lot of that is going through libraries or APIs. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of APIs that are, that expose fragility to the world, but 
certainly library libraries that can be merged in to provide services in a, in a, um, a secure way and a relatively protected way I think is the way it's going so CFNG could also follow that model and if I were to do it again today I think I would try to apply the core methods so that they could span all the time scales. There's still a need. I mean, people are trying to argue that we don't need config management anymore now that we're going back, now that we're using Docker and um, going back to the golden image age, the golden age of images. Um, but I, I don't believe that. I think there are still use cases for uh, model-oriented um, image design and actually for persistent processes, real-time repair. But clearly it needs to be extended into the hypervisor world where spinning up and down environments and containers themselves need some sort of policy-based self-healing systems around them. The main thing I heard was the one about CF Engine working at different timescales, at smaller ones. The other thing I heard was this idea of being able to repair things as you go if I recall, part of the architecture or methodological approach in CF Engine was the zero operator. Can you tell us a little bit about what a zero operation is? Right. The zero operation is what I call convergence, is the idea that um, resetting something to policy, keeping a promise or resetting something to its uh, factory state or its policy desired state is like multiplying by zero. You can take any number, multiply it by zero, and you get zero. So zero is kind of your desired state, in a sense. And if you can create something which behaves like a zero operation, but which you can tune to your specific um, requirements, then you could manage systems simply by multiplying it by this zero operation again and again. It doesn't matter how many times you do it, you'll always end up at that target state. And that's super important because it, it maintains the equilibrium at the point that you desire. Often when we design systems without thinking in that way, there will be stable regions and unstable regions of operation. And the stable regions don't always coincide with the ones that we want. And so uh, we end up dancing around repairing things a lot because it's const things are constantly drifting or going out of whack or sort of exploding in a sense, uh, moving away from a, a fixed configuration. That doesn't change, whether you use golden images, containers, or anything like that. But um, what I find interesting is that now this the speed at which containers can be spun up and, and replaced is giving us a, an alternative strategy for managing and repairing systems, which I actually wrote way back, I wrote about this way back in 1998 in, in a paper I called Computer Immunology, where I was trying to talk about this self-healing uh, nature of systems. And I made this point that there are two ways you can repair a system. One is that you can just wait till it fails and then repair it very fast and try to maintain an equilibrium like that. We do that, you know, when we break a leg or when we do large-scale things. But there's another way that, the bi that biology does, and that is to simply have an abundance of resources and let some things just die and, and you know, kill them off and use, replace them. The disposable cell uh, version of uh, of biology, which is if you've got enough 
containers. If enough redundant cells, you can. Doesn't matter if you scrape a few off. There's plenty more. You know, you, if you scratch yourself, you don't bleed. Usually, you, you you have enough skin left over to to do the job. And that's sort of the thing that we're seeing now. Back in the 90s, it wasn't very plausible because we had hundreds of machines, and and killing a few of them is still you know a significant impact. But now, when it's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of computers. We really are starting to approach biological scales, and those biological analogies are very,、uh, very appropriate. And so we see people doing that trade-off now, and saying, you know, it's actually cheaper now to throw things away, assuming that we've designed the software to be to allow us to throw something away. There are still broken bone analogies like mission critical services that you simply cannot、uh, allow to go down. Uh, typically in financial world and, and so on, there's a lot of software out there which is still mission critical, where you know a few moments of downtime or the loss of a connection could mean millions of dollars. So we, I, th- I believe, we need both. And you know, we we love that narrative in IT that、uh, now we got it right. You know, the new thing that we just invented is now we've done it right, and all that old stuff is is passé. But I think on balance, we always.、Uh, The pendulum swings, and, and we we see new things and old things, and alongside one another. So another way to put this might be、uh, the pets and cattle analogy, and shooting the offending node in the head, notwithstanding, even though the speed at which we can do effective golden image-oriented recovery today is like a zero operator that doesn't remove the need for repair in all contexts. Right, and again, it's all about the timescales. So if your golden image machine is expected to be persistent. It's not just like a function call,、uh, and then it dies. It's sticking around, and there's still value to to repairing that thing rather than spinning up a new one, reprovisioning. Because you know, there's the time to detect that it failed. There's the time to、uh, replace it. There's the possible loss of runtime state, and all of these things which. We try to dismiss, but but could be valuable. One reason I think why the、um, what people horribly call immutable infrastructure model is golden image disposable computing, or what I actually started to call prefabricated disposable computing. One reason that's becoming popular now is that、um, we、uh, we're writing more stateless software. And that model of statelessness, also very promise、uh, theory compatible. Um, allows that mode of thinking to to be used. It's very biological, right? So, Mark, what's next for promise theory and these ideas? Where do you see them going and applying to the future of technology? So, what interests me now is to, as you say, apply these ideas to all kinds of areas in IT. For the last few years, I've been involved in the CFN, CFN in the company, you know, focusing on configuration management, which is one. Case of this,、uh, what I'd love to do now is actually bring these ideas in a wider context. Last year, I spent some time working with、um, networking companies, looking at how to apply promise-oriented thinking to networks, simplify policy, and actually, that's a very natural fit because in networking, many of the existing services that go way back, you know, RIP and OSPF and BGP and these things that make the internet work behind the scenes. These things are already service-oriented, promise-oriented systems, self-healing systems, even for that matter. These these principles are deeply uh, have, uh, embedded into the the infrastructure, but there's still room for for bringing the message and clarifying it even more. 
in uh, recent years we've seen software-defined networking, software-defined data center, all of these, uh, these problems coming up. And what always happens, uh, I've seen it again and again in IT, is that when, whenever a new challenge comes along, the first thing that occurs to IT people is to re-centralize central command and control, um, scale it up. I mean, even, even the big companies like Google unapologetically have these very centralized models and, and can wield huge force to sort of brute force it. But I think uh, the lifetime of that kind of model is is relatively short, given the rate of expansion of IT. Uh, we're looking at the Internet of Things, taking computing all the way to the edge of the network, into our homes, into factory floors. Well, it's already happening. Um, but as as these uh, these what today are toys become actually integrated parts of our uh, lifestyles and, and technologies. Maybe even new homes are built, you know, with things all over the, the shop and industrial strength controllers to manage them. Once that happens, the, the challenges of managing them and uh, keeping them stable and keeping them under our control for that, to use that expression, become paramount. And it's a different order of magnitude again than we're used to today. This idea of centralized data centers is, is going to have to break up, you know, we're going to need cloud substations, and in the same way we scale the, the net of the electrical net, we're going to need to scale the computing, computational net, storage as well, you know. All of the silos that we still are faced with in IT, storage, compute, networking, why are these things still separate? These, they have no business being uh, separate, they're all part of the same circuitry. Uh, we only separate them because we productize them and commercialize them and then focus on working around that particular product. And then we struggle to reconnect them. But cloud is forcing all of this into our consciousness in a very visceral way. And, and now we're having to make everything software-defined, software-accessible rather, not software-defined necessarily, but software-accessible through APIs and to be able to make that scalable, seamless infrastructure and to make it go away. You remember, I think it was Mark Weissman's famous comment about, you know, the most pervasive technologies are the ones that disappear into the walls. We don't see them. We, they're simply there and we take them for granted. This is still something that has to happen in IT and it's not happening fast enough <laughs> in my book. We're, we're rather plugging ourselves into these ripply power suits and, and, and wielding great power with through APIs and remote controls. It could I mean there's a potential for huge doing huge damage as well. So I, I'm very keen on bringing this message of stability, autonomous agency, and how you use that to scale in a safe way so that we can really bring these systems to to bear on society at large. All right. Thank you, Mark, for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you for annealing. <laughs> You can reach Mark on Twitter at MarkBurgess underscore OSL. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Oh.